this evening, we are really pleased to welcome Angela Noisat and Pragna Patel um, for her stories, and we are going to be discussing different types of feminism. So just to get you started, uh, I'll let you know that this session is being recorded. So if you don't want to be um, seen, you can just turn your camera off uh, and if everyone could please stay muted throughout until we get to the speaking bit. So if you have a question, that would be really great. We've got some volunteers on hand who are going to be fielding any questions or any tech issues. So if you just if you have any issues, just uh, mention them in the chat and our volunteers will reach out to you. Um, and we have a code of conduct that we've been following that uh, you guys helped us co-create in our first week. And I think that will just be pasted into the chat again if, you, if it's not there already. Um, and I'm just going to do a quick introduction to her stories. If you've been attending every week, I'm sorry, you're gonna be bored of this by now, but I'll get through it as quick as I can. So well, welcome, thank you for spending your Wednesday evening with us. Um, a little bit about this program. It's a collaboration between Newington Green Meeting House and Newington Green Alliance. Um, Amy and I, we came together in the wake of the debate generated by the statue for Mary Wollstonecraft that's here on the green. And it got us thinking about what feminism means and the stories of the women that have shaped modern feminism in the UK today. We have a shared passion for women's stories, particularly focusing on minoritized groups and their many intersections. So for example, class, race, gender, disability, um, and so on. And so therefore it was important for us to showcase as wide a range of voices as possible. So we want these sessions to be interactive, um, accessible to all and promote discussion in a safe, open and inclusive space. And we're welcoming people from all backgrounds and particularly focusing on our Hackney and Islington communities. No prior knowledge is necessary. Um, as I mentioned before, this is a safe and inclusive space. And we want people to come away from these sessions um, feeling informed, inspired, and curious to learn more. So now, um, if as the session goes on, please do tweet about it. Our hashtag is her stories. Um, and now Amy is just going to introduce um, Newington Green Meeting House. Hello, um, I'm Amy. I'm the programme manager um, for Newington Green Meeting House. Um, I'm just going to do a quick visual description for accessibility and then Roshni, oh, yeah. you can do yours in a minute. Um, so I'm Amy, I'm a white woman, I have blonde hair and I'm um, sat um, with a um, dark coloured curtain behind me. Um, welcome and uh, I'm the programme manager at the Meeting House and um, the Meeting House is an amazing 300 plus year old building in Newington Green which is on the border of Hackney and Islington um, and one of um, the things that we're kind of most known for is it's a place where Mary Wollstonecraft um, came, she opened a school here and kind of became uh, radicalised and learnt from this dissenting community locally um, and was supported as a, a woman with these amazing ideas about how to change the world and so lots of our programs are about sharing the kind of radical history of the local area. Um, and I'll introduce Newington Green Alliance so I'll just do my little um, audio description so my name is Roshni, uh, I'm an Indian woman with a dark bob haircut, I'm sitting on a grey armchair in front of a bookcase. 
Um, so I'm a volunteer for Newington Green Alliance. We are a community charity based here in, in Newington Green. Uh, our, the aim of the NGA is to better the lives of everyone who works or lives in and around Newington Green by building a strong and sustaining community. And we do this uh, through a number of projects and events um, that seek to bring this community together. Um, we are entirely volunteer-led and we have almost 90 volunteers at the moment. We really came, um, came along last year during the first lockdown uh, and we've just grown steadily ever since. We have a number of projects either already um, that are already running and uh, quite a few more in, in, sorry, in development. So you can see some of them showcased here. So they cover everything from anti-racism to um, hyper-local news. We have youth projects, refugee resettlement. Uh, we just launched a film club, um, mental health um, and, and so many more. So please do check us out. And I think now I'm just going to introduce our first speaker. So that's um, Angela Norsutter. Um, welcome. And um, I'll let you do your proper introduction because you're going to be able to do it better than me. Hi, hello, everyone. <laughs> Good. Well, that's, that's very nice. Thank you, Roshni. Um, and it's very nice to be here and very nice of you all to come. So I'm here, obviously, um, as one of the older feminists who's kind of knocked around the block with feminism for a while. And um, that's my perspective in come bringing an idea of different feminisms here. I wrote a book um, when I was on the women's page of The Guardian, which looked at, or just after I'd left actually, which looked at um, feminism between 1968 and 1988, um, which was when second wave feminism was generally seen to have sort of come into being and risen to um, its height before it faded down again. And now, of course, we're into a new stage, but that's something else. But it was a very vital time, particularly for people like me. I'd um, had a very sheltered childhood in many ways. And I'd grown up in a pretty liberal household with a brother with males around. And, you know, generally I didn't, I didn't feel aware of the enormous tensions that I realized later a lot of women had. Um, anyway, I was asked to do this book, casting my eye as both a feminist and a journalist over what the women's movement had been about during these years. And um, so I'm going to read to you the opening paragraph of the book because it kind of gives you an idea of where I was coming from at that time. At the end of the 1980s, the women's liberation movement celebrated its 20th anniversary. Two decades of activity, activism, consciousness raising and campaigning. During this time, the women involved were reviled as strident, butch, ugly, man-hating harridans, hell-bent on the destruction of our traditional way of life. But they had also been celebrated as inspirational, powerful, a source of spiritual salvation for other women and the architects of a vision which would make life happier for men as well as women. That didn't, however, um, make everybody happy. I named the book Hyenas in Petticoats because that's what the writer Horace Walpole called Mary Wollstonecroft when she'd written The Vindication of the Rights of Women. And he took this view that, you know, she was kind of appeared as a woman, but was really a sort of distortion of a woman and a bit like a hyena, which can change its sexual organs. And that's what he saw her as because of the things she was saying. And it seemed to me that 200 years later, you know, there was still some semblance of that going on 
Um, so my aim in this writing was to show how feminism was interfacing with life and how a feminist perspective had de developed around issues that were of importance to women. Um, and women like myself, actually, who hadn't been at all woke or aware at that time. But I, when I joined the Guardian Women's page, I was on... It was at this period and I was suddenly found myself writing about issues to do with, you know, how women were treated in society, what rights we had, what rights we didn't have, um, what kind of things were assumed to be OK for a woman to put up with when it wasn't with a man and all that. And it was quite an eye opener, quite a revelation, really. Um, and so. I set about doing the book. I researched the history of feminism earlier than this period. And I considered, for example, how suffragism, the most notable rising up of women insisting that they must have equal rights when it came to votes, had been vastly important, and it was vastly important, um, as a symbol of what women could and would do. But actually, it didn't alter any of the embedded structural inequalities, attitudes and beliefs that kind of held the patriarchal system together and was the way the world worked. Um, so, you know, a vote might be valuable and symbolically it was very valuable, um, although it didn't actually bring all the rewards that the suffragettes had hoped. But the centerpiece of my book was to hear what women, of all kinds of women across the social scale from different ethnic backgrounds, religions, sexual orientation, and with very different views of what they wanted from life had to say. It was quite fascinating to hear because, you know, any assumptions I might have had about what certain types of women would think were challenged pretty hard. Um, so I may have described myself as a feminist before I wrote, wrote the book, um, or before I started writing about the issues rather for The Guardian, but I came to see how little I really knew or understood about the depth of oppression, psychological as well as physical and practical, that women were up against. Nor was this new, noisy, determined women's movement with feminists abandoning a feminine image as they demanded equal rights to men in the workplace and at home, what all women wanted to be associated with. The press played into the fears women had that by losing the status quo, they would could not have a future that they could visualize. The press carried articles by women urging their sisters not to forget the advantages they had simply because they were women, that playing on our femininity would get us further than marching on the streets. And I found a quote from journalist William Spicer, which seemed to sum it all up, cringing in fear at the direction women could be heading. He said, as a man, it is frightening and a little depressing to learn that three out of every four wives no longer believes that looking after a home and children, to say nothing of a husband, is sufficiently rewarding full-time profession. So there you are. What an awful lot we were. Um, but the gains of women's domestic life was being unpicked to demonstrate how thoroughly the how housewife deified as the goddess in the home in women's magazines and such publications um, and, male, and in male desires actually disadvantaged women and it, you know all the ways in which we now understand how being left holding the baby literally with piles of washing up when the old man comes home and puts his feet up on the chaise lounge were all actually very bad for women's well-being in every direction particularly as it was unchallenged I mean it wasn't like it was an agreement it was just the status quo. Um, and then, of course, along came Betty Friedan with The Feminine Mystique, which was a seminal book appearing at this time and laying out just how unhappy many women were with what seemed this unavoidable destiny. And I mean, I have to say, one of the things that I 
find pleasing these days um, is that a lot of women seem really to have negotiated situations with their partners of whatever gender, um, where, you know, sharing all these things is considered a part of how they relate to each other. It's not just, um, you know, you must do this and you must do that and that's appropriate for you or me, but rather we are a, a project together. And I mean, I think that that is, I, I, I believe that our future and our ch the children of the future will be much um, impacted upon by this in a very positive way. I mean, that's my belief. As, so as important as anything at this time was for women to come together and cut political teeth and campaign actively for change, changes in what became known as the sisterhood. And I think that's enduringly terrific. I mean, one sees it here tonight that, you know, women are taken interest in the subject, the matter at hand, which is our lives, the way we live, you know, and but it doesn't have to be discarding men from the discussions now. I mean, at that time, men were very much discouraged from being part of it. And I remember taking my five-year-old son into um, Sister Right bookshop in Islington, where they sold books for, you know, feminist books and books for women. And they said to me, you can't bring him in. And I said, what do you mean? They said, he's a male. And I said, but he's five years old. Mm. And they said, no, no males. And I thought then, what a pity, you know, what a pity we have to create these barriers where my five-year-old son is guilty of his masculinity before he's had a chance to decide how he acted out. But that was how it was in many, many instances at that time. Um, so this talking and sharing and and coming together and saying, is this how we like it to be? I mean, I remember, for example, once I mean, I, I live with a partner and for better and for worse, we've knocked around quite a lot of these issues. But I remember early on, I had a, a women's meeting in my house and he came into the kitchen as we were talking. And one of the women stood up and said, I can't talk with a man in the room. And I thought then, my God, you know, how ridiculous. But actually, later on, I thought it's not ridiculous. There have been many, many reasons why women don't feel comfortable talking around men and saying the things they want to say. And um, I actually did quite a lot of sort of brainstorming with myself around that. Then, I mean, these were at the time, the issues that were really important at that time were if women were to have a proper stake in society, were focused on equal pay. Women were routinely paid less than men for the same work. And of course, still are in some situations. I mean, it's certainly much better than it was then. And I mean, women getting through the glass ceiling and indeed, you know, pushing men underfoot as they climbed into the glass ceiling um, and working alongside men in equal jobs with equal pay. That is also much more visible than it ever was in those days. Um, and I remember that from The Guardian, it was no different. Um, then there was equal education and opportunity. That was a big one because education had only just got round to the idea that women could train, you know, at university level who could have universities that were and not just for them as women because they were different, but that could be mixed, that um, that they could learn the same subjects as men, that they could be equally good in the workplace with these subjects. I mean, all that needed needed a lot of um, dealing with, writing about, thinking about, you know, and, and getting into the institutions. Then there was 24-hour um, nurseries and free contraception. That was a very big one because, you know, for a lot of women, having children wasn't necessarily a choice that they wanted, and that wasn't necessarily a choice. They didn't want to have children when they had them. 
they had more than they wanted, they wanted to space them out differently, whatever. And of course, pre-contraception, that was mighty difficult, if not impossible, and an awful lot of women did get stuck with having large families, which handicapped them, even if they loved their children, which I think most of us do. But um, that was that was how it was then. And I mean, getting free contraception was a big part of that. And the abortion fight was a big, big part of what we were on about at that time. I mean, this control over our bodies, <clears throat> the abortion issue was a, like a firelighter in the mix, really, because women realized that in this very physical way, men had control over our bodies. It wasn't just that they were most likely to be the abortionists if we could get an abortion, but that they could pass laws preventing us as men in our lives, they could take us to court for not having children we conceived, you know, not wanting to, and this kind of thing. Um, and it was just a very, I mean, I actually wrote a book called Mixed Feelings, which was about the experience of abortion in many different circumstances and with many different conditions, looking at how differently it played out, depending on how you were treated, how the law was behaving, et cetera, et cetera. So there was all that going on, but, not all women who saw themselves as feminists were drawn to the hardline sisterhood. Erin Pizzi, who was as important as anyone has been really, with her book, Scream Quietly or the Neighbours May Hear, which was about domestic violence, um, and she was revealing the extent of it. Um, and, I mean, she became something of a heroine. She was in, you know, one of the early refuge movement people. She um, stood up for women. She talked I mean, very stridently and, you know, um, with huge passion and conviction about, you know, how it was that we could have women treated like this in our society. But she also said that she didn't, um, she was not drawn to the intellectual hardcore of feminism. She felt outside it in a way that I think quite a lot of women do. So she, because she said she didn't want to use a language, a dictionary of appropriate terminology or follow a party line to be a champion of women's rights. And I think there's been a lot of that, and that's cut across the class thing as well. I mean, I believe, but correct me if I'm wrong, that that's a bit different now that, you know, working class women are much more able to raise their voices and say, this is me and this is what I believe. But in those days, um, that wasn't so easy at all. And I think Erin Pitsy was making that point that, you know, it's quite exclusive, really. Now, these days, of course, the whole thing of racism, I mean, racism was very, very much around in the early days of... Um, my feminism, and there were people like Alice Walker and so on, and then came Maya Angelou and all those people talking about what it meant to be a black woman and how it was like living in another sphere, really. And um, obviously, a lot of that, I think, has changed and shifted. And, I'm, you know, for all the things that are still wrong, it seems to me that things like Black Lives Matter embodies women and men of all colours and type, and, you know, wanting to look at how racism can be dealt with in our society um, from the same perspective. And um, I think that wasn't how it was. Well, I know it wasn't how it was in those days. And also, I mean, while white women were saying, well, they understood, you know, the oppression, black women didn't always like that. I mean, I remember the writer, Joan Riley, saying, I've listened to white women talking about the suffering of blacks, but I don't want to be labelled a victim by them. So you'd immediately got that difficulty of having a conversation, if you like, around it. Then there was sexuality, which was problematic. The pill had come in and suddenly women were free from fear of unwanted pregnancy. But what many of us then experienced was pressure from men to sleep with them. And if we said no, we were ridiculed, we were called frigid. Um, how on earth could we not want to sleep with anyone who deigned to want us? Um, you know, and it was very un uncomfortable, actually. We felt somehow that we were wrong as women, that, you know, that we should be more 
sexually excited by these men who wanted us, but um, we weren't. Well, sometimes we were and sometimes we weren't. Anyway, that was unpleasant. Um, and I think it was one of the things that really did need dealing with at that time was a lot more engaging with men as friends and as colleagues and things and talking to them about why these attitudes existed. And of course, that kind of conversation- Sorry to interrupt, was... Angela, just to let you know it's a couple more minutes. Oh God, all right, sorry, I do tend Thank to talk. You. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, that was a period in which um, sexuality began to shift too. Gay women were more able to come out and there was a whole political movement wanting um, heterosexual women to be political lesbians because that would sort of show that there was a greater gay movement and anyway it was considered the right way to go and there was the politics of appearance which was a hot topic you know did you dress in sexy clothes that you actually liked or did you dress in dungarees or did you do something in the middle and um, there was Karen Durbin writing in Miss Magazine, and I love this. She described a pair of dagger-heeled, thigh-high, soft leather boots. And she said she felt wonderfully swashbuckling in these, but also she couldn't walk in them. So she decided to go for sensible shoes and walk her way into feminism. And I think, in a way, that's what I'm trying to say, is that those of us from that generation feel that we were trying to kind of cut, cut our own path, find our own way to the feminism that we felt we needed. And it's very thrilling to see a new generation of women doing it their way. There you are, Amy, finished. <laughs> Thank you so much, Angela. Um, I could have listened to you talk for ages, so we only have an hour. You, you got a lot out in the 15 minutes, though. But, so thank you so much. It's going to take a while to digest. I um, <laughs> might have to watch back the recording afterwards. <laughs> well, that's a pleasure. <laughs> um, I'm sure provide some rich conversation in our breakout groups. Anyway, I'm just going to move on to Pragna next. Pragna Patel, um, off you go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I could listen to Angela too. And actually, I, I remember quite a few of those, you know, <laughs> moments and discussions. And there were very positive things, but I think there are also some very negative things, if we're very honest, even within feminism, in terms of treatment of each other and differences and so yep. on. And I think that, you know, a lot of women were also broken by the failure of the feminist movement to promise what it you know, what it aspired to. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about the sort of feminism of South or Black Sisters because uh, it's a particular brand of feminism that we have tried to develop. And I don't want it to be necessarily, you know, read as reflective of all Black feminism. It's not, it's our feminism and it's our particular history. Um, and so really our beginnings are that we uh, formed out of, uh, our, our, we began our political life in the late yeah. 70s under the all-consuming shadow of Thatcherism, which was characterized as particular politics characterized by rampant free market capitalism. It was characterized by chronic industrial decline, uh, rising racism and authoritarianism and widening inequality. Um, so we were a child of that period, of the 70s period. So I kind of feel I came at the tail end of the second wave movement. Um, and we were also a resurgent uh, child. Uh, we, were, we were also a child of the resurgent wave of second wave of feminism that Angela's talked about. And of course, by the late 70s, a burgeoning anti-racist movement. So in the 70s, the UK was a period of mass anti-racist mobilizations against racism. 
and they were led by a largely younger generation of African Caribbean and South Asian men and women who were really inspired by the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement of the UK in the US um, and the black power movements of the US. So on 23rd April 1979, in a rare moment of unity, uh, the largely working class community, South Asian community of Southall, supported by anti-racist activities, black and white from outside the area, rose up to defend Southall against racist and fascist demonstrators who decided to march through Southall and hold a meeting at the town hall, an act which was widely regarded as racial provocation. And we've seen repetitions of that and not you know, not so long ago. The 79 uprising, racial uprising, sadly culminated in the mass criminalization of the anti-racist protesters, many of whom were Asian. And it led to the murder of Blair Peach, a white anti-racist activist who was killed by police officers from specialized military units, police units. Um, by contrast, not a sing there was not a single arrest of white fa the, the white fascist youths who were marching and holding their meetings. <laughs> and the police officer who killed Blair Peach has never been brought to justice despite campaigns for justice um, since then. The anti-racist anti protests in Southall really proved to be a turning point in the struggle against racism in the UK. And the reason for that is particularly, uh, it politicized a whole generation of South Asian men and women. Now we'd seen racial uprisings in largely African Caribbean communities, Notting Hill and elsewhere. But this Southall pro anti-racist protest was the first of its kind involving South Asian younger generation, younger generations and, and the the significance of that protest and, and that event is that it also be created space for solidarity around racism. And it shone a light on the reality of racism in the streets and state institutions. I mean, people were talking about institutional racism well before it finally got recognized in the aftermath of the Stephen Lawrence killing. Um, now, Southall Black Sisters, was born out of that moment. Um, it was born out of that anti-racist defense of Southall. And it involved many women of South Asian and African backgrounds um, coming together. Now these were women, younger women, who participated in the anti-racist protests, but who then found themselves sidelined within the anti-racist movement as women. And um, some of these young women went on to establish South All Black Sisters as an autonomous black feminist campaigning group. And it was a campaigning group from 79 to 82 when I joined straight out of university. My parents lived on the outskirts of South Hall. Um, I was at university, came back and wanted to work with women and wanted to work around issues of race. Um, when I joined the campaigning group had more or less fizzled out, but I was so inspired by what I, the politics that I kind of resuscitated it and set up the what is now the current advocacy and campaigning center. So um, why did black and minority women organize in this way? 
Well, it was, as I said, as a because of as a result of the growing frustration with the anti-racist movement to deal with sexism, to deal with sexual harassment of women within the movement, and more draw more broadly to deal with the women's question. Um, at the same time, the same women found themselves challenging the emerging feminist movement that Angela talks about uh, for its failure to deal with the question of race. So in doing so, Alpha Black Sisters or SBS, as I refer to it, emerged as one of the first autonomous black feminist groups in the country to challenge both racism and sexism, which actually rendered black and minority women invisible. Um, so our inception itself was an act of dissent. It was a dissent against, um, it was a defiant uh, stand against the kind of feminist movement, but also the anti-racist movement too. And we charted our own political journey towards an anti-racist feminism uh, by both drawing on the feminist traditions and the anti-racist traditions, uh, but also challenging those movements um, even though, you know, they gave birth to us, in effect. Um, we were and have remained uh, as uncompromising on challenging gender inequality and patriarchal power from within our communities as challenging racism outside of our communities. And that is not an easy position to implement. Um, and I can talk more about it in the discussion. But just to give you an example, in the early 80s, Southall Black Sisters broke the silence on domestic violence in our own communities. We publicly protested and demonstrated from the mid 80s onwards against the string of domestic abuse related homicides and suicides, particularly of South Asian women in Southall and elsewhere. And in this respect, we actually borrowed from the Indian feminist movement um, who are already campaigning very public ways in India, um, shaming perpetrators of dowry-related deaths of women. So at that point, the Indian feminist movement is really focused on highlighting the, uh, the thousands of women who have been killed as a result of not bringing in dowries, sufficient dowries to a marriage. Um, and, and the Indian state was doing nothing about it. And what, And actually, there were precursors to the Me Too movement that we see now because they were publicly naming and shaming perpetrators in the absence of, uh, or the failure of the law in the absence of state institutions to hold perpetrators to account, actually women took to the streets to do it themselves. Um, so you can see the connections. But it was also important for us to publicly state that we were borrowing from the Indian feminist movement because we're often <coughs> castigated for being Western but feminism being a Western idea. And here we were making connections with women in India, showing that they were practicing and thinking feminism at the same time as women around the world. And I think that was really, really important to show that this is not a Western concept and not a Western um, thing. And what was interesting for us was unlike the race mobilizations in Southall in 79, the same community that responded with anger and indignation at racial violence completely zipped and silenced on gender-based violence, um, showed no uh, concern or, or sympathy even to the women who trapped in abuse and who 
felt that there was no way out. So we also had to set ourselves against traditionalists and conservatives in our own communities who tried to subjugate women through the maintenance of the patriarchal status quo. Um, and we had to cope with the anti-racist forces who felt that the, the key struggle was a struggle against race or class, but not when, you know, um, uh, gender inequality. Mm -hmm. And so really what our, our feminism was trying to do was show that actually there are, there are many sources of power and abuses of power. The state, abuse of power doesn't just emanate from the state. It also emanates from um, family structures, from community structures. And, um, and there are other power relations and inequalities within our communities born out of, for example, religious caste, gender different uh, divisions, and, and that gives rise to differential access to power. So in this way, we were really dissenting and our dissenting politics broke with this idea that the black community is a homogenized community, always you know, in unison um, and always um, uh, involved in the one struggle against racism. I don't think I realized it fully then, but in doing so, we were laying the foundations of a politics of simultaneous resistance uh, against all forms of oppression. And I think that's the key thing for us is that there isn't a hierarchy of oppression. There isn't this idea that one form of oppression deserves more priority than another, that mm -hmm. we have to as feminists face many directions at the same time. Um, and if I look back at the feminism of the 70s and 80s, I identify three vital aspects of our politics that we try to forge. The first is that we mobilized around the term black. Now that's become really contentious again. And a lot of people say, well, you're Asian. Why do you call yourself black? What gives you the right to call yourself black? <laughs> and I don't think people understand that back in the seventies, we adopted black as a secular unifying identity, inclusive of all histories of colonialism and racism. And that until the late eighties, Many Afro-Caribbeans and South Asians in the anti-racist movement mobilized around the term black. It was never descriptive. It was a political identity. And it came from the civil rights movement. And it was about um, understanding that we had common histories and that we can come together in the struggle against racism and forge solidarities with other social justice movements. And actually that's the other point I do wanna mention that the term black enabled us to understand our own histories of oppression as, you know, as minorities, but also to locate ourselves in wider social justice movements. So we were forever organizing black delegations to Northern Ireland during the, you know, the troubles there. We were part of black delegations to the mining communities in 1984, uh, showing solidarity there. And these were genuine attempts to build politics of solidarity and to locate ourselves within wider social justice movements. And really what we were trying to do was bridge the gap between anti-racism, feminism and progressive politics. Um, the other important aspect of our politics is that we were thinking and doing intersectionality long before it became fashionable. Um, and, you know, and so 
in the 80s, everything Angela said about what the feminist movement was up to, you know, a campaign for equal pay, campaigns around abortion rights, campaigns around um, shelters for victims of domestic violence. These were all, you know, sort of raging around us. But Southall Black Sisters and other Black feminists were beginning to challenge the movements to also take account of Black and minority women's experiences. So we were saying that there were also other priorities for feminists. These were all priorities, but together we also had to um, factor in the ways in which race intersected with gender discrimination. And so, for example, look at the impact of harsh anti-family immigration laws that impacted on women's lives, or to look at uh, the virginity testing of Asian women that was being carried out in the 70s as part of that hostile environment that was created back then. Um, and, um, and we was talking also about women in the global south um, and the way in which you know, uh, reproductive um, contraception was being dumped on those women without them having a choice about the matter. So these were all political priorities and it showed that women's relationship with the state was very much dependent on where you were socially positioned as women and how that complicated and made complex, you know, how we uh, dismantled all these interconnecting st structures of oppression. I don't want to paint a romantic picture of, of black feminism because even amongst us, there were different political priorities, but there was an attempt to forge an intersectional analysis, not intersectional identities, is not about identities. It was about looking at different structures of power and how they connect. And that's really important because nowadays intersectionality has kind of been reduced to just multiple identities that are just added onto each other in this kind of um, way. That doesn't explain oppression. Um, we need to talk about structural links between sexuality, race, class, gender, disability, and so on. And the third aspect of the feminism that I want to highlight is the way in which we tackled the multicultural policies of the state. So multiculturalism and as an idea is something that's positive. It's very value. It's important. We should value it because, you know, we want to live in multicultural societies. We're enriched by multicultural societies. Having said that, multicultural policies that the state adopted was something very different. That was about homogenizing black communities and then creating gatekeepers to represent the needs of black communities. And who were the gatekeepers? They were largely um, religious and community leaders who were male, who had no interest in social justice, certainly no interest in women's rights and who were kind of mediating between the state and communities and deciding and representing what were the needs of the community. And they were never representing the needs of the women. Um, and so that was a problem. And the other problem with multiculturalism is it became, it became a way of tolerating diversity and recognizing diversity became an end in itself. So it wasn't about equality. It was just about, well, you know, we have, diverse people and we tolerate diverse communities and that that makes us progressive. Actually, what makes us progressive is tackling inequality, racial inequality, not just recognizing racial diversity. Pragma, just a couple of minutes. Yes. So I would just saying that um, the multicultural model also made it very difficult for this for, uh, for us to get the state to intervene 
in, in issues like forced marriage, honor-based violence, FGM, they weren't recognized. When I started, you know, doing this kind of work in the 80s and you'd turn up at social services, you'd turn up at the police and say, you know, please, can you protect this young girl from forced marriage? They would say no. And they would say that we can't, we must re re respect cultural uh, sensibilities and cultural difference. And what that meant was that these women therefore were not protected. And I can give, you know, sort of stories of really horrific cases that I dealt with where this was the response. And actually it was seen as a progressive response. It was seen as respecting diversity and cultural differences without recognizing that those same cultural, cultural norms were actually, um, you know, um, um, perpetuating abuse and inequality for minority women. I would just end by saying that, sadly, we have moved further and further to the right in relation to minority communities. We have seen the rise of religious fundamentalism that actually began following the Rushdie affair and the publication of the Satanic Verses. And the state has embedded religion in institutions and in, in the way in which it relates to minorities. So religious leaders have become even more emboldened and more powerful. And in this context of austerity um, and shrinking of the welfare state, what we're seeing is religion taking the place of the welfare state, providing services, welfare services, acting as arbiters of justice. And what that means is that actually it's undermining, not only undermining women's rights and devastating for women because it radiates a whole range of violence against women and girls, but it's um, not only is it doing all that, but it's actually normalizing a very, very uh, profound um, patriarchal structures and, um, and making it far more difficult for women to speak out now than they did you know, in the 80s when we first started. So really important that autonomous feminist organizations still exist now, not only to provide the services to meet women's daily needs because those material realities still need to be addressed, um, but we also need to really be part of the widest struggles for transformation, for equality and social justice. I don't think any of us have a blueprint and that's where you all come in because you can do some of this better than we've ever done and, and improve on what we've done and build on what we've done, what we've done, um, even challenge us on some of the stuff we've done. But what I think is important is that if feminism is to retain its credibility it must grapple with all forms of injustice, even though it focuses on women's rights, must locate itself within wider social justice movements and must face many directions at the same time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pragna. That, that was, um, again, I could have listened to you all evening, but what we're gonna do now is take some of these, uh, what we've heard now and um, go into breakout groups and we've, we've prepared some questions for you all to discuss. Uh, so Amy is just going to split everybody into the groups and you'll be there with your facilitators. We'll give you the questions. These are the questions so you can see them. Uh, We're actually going to split you up into six groups because we had more people come to the session than we thought, which is wonderful. So Roshni and I are going to take a group two and we're going to repeat those questions. So there's going to be four questions but six groups. And then we're probably gonna run over by five minutes or so, but obviously everyone 
you can leave at nine you can leave whenever you need to leave you don't have to stay but um what we do is after the breakout rooms we come together and quickly just go through each group and one person from each group then um shares what um the group was talking about so i'm just going to pop you into rooms don't worry about rem uh, remembering the question because your facilitator has the question so you don't have to worry about that i'm just going to pop you in those rooms now Great, I think that's most people now. Um, so I'll probably hand over to Roshni. Roshni, are you okay to go through and um, and uh, facilitate this bit where each group feeds back? Yes, of course. Uh, should we go to Daisy's group first? Yeah, sure. I was gonna just feed back quickly from what we talked about. So our question was, what role does or should journalism have in sharing the different feminisms present today to educate the public? It's obviously a really massive question. Um, we touched on a couple of different things. So we kind of spoke a bit about how it has a responsibility to look at the really important issues associated with feminism and how we do see a lot of stuff around kind of domestic violence, um, in the, in the media. Um, then we also talked a little bit about how there are more complicated issues um, within the media and gender kind of stuff to do with like transgender issues. Um, then Angela was in our room and she kind of touched upon this idea of candy floss journalism. And when it's relating to feminist issues, you shouldn't, you should be always making it palatable and um, she described it as sexy, but not in a, not in a sexual way um, to make it kind of more applicable to, to the people. And that's kind of part of like the patriarchal um, background of, of the journalism. I hope I've described that properly. Um, and then we spoke a little bit about how in response to a lack of feminist voice in journalism, you might see feminists starting their own kinds of, um, of, of journalism um, in the form of different magazines. I think that was kind of the majority of what we spoke about. Brilliant, that sounds super interesting. I like this, I never heard of candy floss journalism. I think that's gonna stay with me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, we, should we move to Lauren next? Yep, so in our group, um, our question was, how do we amplify better the voices and stories of women from marginalized and underrepresented communities in this culture war period we're experiencing? Um, again, really big question, um, but how we tackled it, uh, we, were, we were mainly talking about the benefits of the era we live in at the moment where social media is obviously a huge tool for us to be able to have our voices heard. Um, but I think a big part of that um, that we were talking about is making sure that anybody who has a slightly more privileged platform from, from their social background or their race um, is using that privilege to give other people the, a mouthpiece to speak, but not, not speaking for them. Um, and this, you know, this is true as is true of feminism as it is of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's it's just it's it's making use of the avenues that you have available and trying to bolster other people that maybe don't have those avenues. Um, another thing we were talking about is it's important in any conversation to consider who might be missing in the room um, and just paying minds to the different variety of communities that have got their own issues that you 
will unlikely be aware of all of them. And that's why it's really be beneficial to even things like this, to be able to bring people together, to speak on different issues that while everyone has, you know, a, a connecting um, focal point of feminism, if you have people come in as speakers and talk on issues that you might not be aware of, then it just, it continues on the conversation of people on this call can then go to talk to other people about it or look, you know, more into the different, even following the social accounts of like Pragna, um, that's something that is, it's a click of a button, you're then part of that conversation um, and then so on, it can go up to other people. And that's kind of the main thing is the chain of events. Um, so that's, yeah, they're kind of the main points we talked about. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Lauren. And I think I think that is really important for yeah, people to, who have that platform to pass the mic and shine um, these stories of underrepresented groups. Um, we have Eliani next. Yeah, so our question was, what are the differences between feminism today and in the 70s and 80s with second wave feminism and how do we bridge the gap? And we, mo we mostly kind of focused on the differences and how in the past there used to be more spokespeople for feminism and it was more of a group than now it's a lot more individualized and with social media it's more kind of independent opinions coming through rather than like one or two people taking the floor um, like through newspapers and more direct streams and because there are so many different people sharing the views and because of social media so many different people have big platforms it can be quite confusing and quite easy to get lost in everything to do with feminism because it's not so clear-cut as it used to be um, and obviously there used to be loads of difference as well but now every single person can share their thought as a click of a button and yeah it's like what Lauren was saying about social media and how kind of prevalent it makes things um, and then we were also kind of talking about the differences like within our own group and the age differences and how that gives people different experiences of feminism that we might not really realize how different those experiences are. And I definitely didn't realize kind of how diverse experiences are and kind of how used to things, like used to the way of things and kind of used to different types of feminism. Um, and then we kind of also spoke about how, how things have changed from how women kind of used to do things for men and now how despite that's that's changed into now women doing things for themselves there's still a lot of different forces and pressures involved in that and how it's still not always kind of doing things for themselves and the pressure of kind of doing things like for feminism um yeah that kind of covers everything we spoke about Brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, our group discussed the same thing. There was a lot of crossover. Actually, maybe we should just cross that into our group so we can carry on with the same theme. Um, I don't, did you want to feedback, Pragna? Or? No, you go ahead. But, um, you know, we very much echo some of the stuff that's just been said. That was a similar kind of discussion that we were having. Um, yeah, and then just just to then kind of um, hop on more into that um, social media point, we said, yeah, how it waters down the feminism um, and... Uh, and the, how social media can, can water down the anal analysis, feminist yeah. analysis, because you take very simplistic binary positions 
which makes it difficult to actually, you know, sort of look at things in a more intersectional way or in a more multidimensional way. And also it can, you know, there is a whole sort of way in which any dissenting opinion is immediately slammed down. And so people feel afraid or so intimidated to talk because you're supposed to have, you know, clear cut opinions rather than questions or, or raising, you know, concerns even to challenge whatever the status quo is on the social media can be very difficult. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. And then we just said on, on the, the positives of social media is that it, it is more inclusive in the sense that it allows people to protest and get involved if even if they can't leave their homes for whatever reason. And I think this is a topic we've touched on over the past couple of weeks. So it's not all bad. <laughs> um, I'll just quickly move on to the next group. And that is Anais. Yes. So we talked about sisterhood. If sisterhood is too um, an important concept today. And we're discussing about, um, we talk about how sisterhood can organize the feminist, feminist movement in such a way that we have different groups working in different fronts at the same time. We also talked about how sisterhood has a very important um, way of empowering each other and giving support to each other. And that makes you, other women feel empowered and able to action, to do action. Um, Kate, we have the lovely presence of Kate. She talked, she talked about how sisterhood kept women together throughout the years within the left-wing groups and other organizations that um, myself and my experience, Pragan also talked about that, how we still have some group left-wing groups who don't talk about sex harassment within the groups. And Kate told, told, told us about how sisterhood, a bit about how sisterhood kept women together through all the years within these kind of issues. Um, and then we also talked about how not having a sisterhood can divide us in such a way that the patriarchal system can keep working in their own way and maintaining their way of work. And more or less that. And we also talked a bit about um, Latin American feminism, South Globe feminism, how we are way behind and how we um, don't really see the same feminism in Europe as the feminism we are having there at the moment because we are way, way behind. But I think in, a total, in the end, in the general idea is that sisterhood is important to empower each other and, you know, work in different forms and keep us together as, as one. Brilliant, thank you so much, Anais. And uh, lastly, I'll just go to Amy. I think we're discussing the same thing. Yeah, I asked Janet Hi, if she would, oh, Janet's going to speak for our group, I think. Brilliant. I can start and see if Janet sure. pops in. Janet, feel free to, um, to just jump in and take over at any point if you would like to share. Um, so we were talking about, um, well, Janet was talking about her experience um, of being in, quite involved in feminist movements in the 80s and how sisterhood was a really important concept for her. And I suppose that was really interesting because um, coming from a younger generation, I, I kind of went into the conversation thinking that 
um, a bit how Pragna said that it'd be really good to build more solidarity, not just based on gender, but on different structures of oppression. And um, I think Janet's point, which was a really good point, which was, was that at that time, what they really needed to do was to mobilize women to, um, to you know, to, to try and work towards liberation. And um, so therefore, um, doing that kind of work in terms of like getting women together to make that change was really important and sisterhood was a really important concept for that um, and I think that that might have got lost in the generations a little bit so I thought that was really imp important um, to hear that but also we were talking um, to Benjamin and um, and kind of working out um, if that term of sisterhood was exclusive and if that might um, stop other people maybe getting involved um, with the, the with feminism. Um, and so we were kind of like talking about those kind of things. So, yeah. So can you not hear me? Oh, I can hear you now, Janet. Yeah, yeah. I think what happened, something happened with my device and it suddenly muted. Sorry about that. Please yeah, feel yeah, free I, to I share, Janet. About... Um, how in the early 80s, when I uh, remember that um, sisterhood was a, a very frequently used um, and empowering term for women, um, that was the days when we had badges and things that said sisterhood is powerful and things like that and T-shirts. And um, feminists used to, in these, those pre-internet days, feminists used to sign off letters with yours in sisterhood and things like that. And I remember there was very um, classic texts of, articles feminist articles from the women's movement called sisterhood is powerful and that really epitomizes what it was at the time it was about women's empowerment and women's activism and it, at that time it was left to women to mobilize on their own behalf as, as um, Amy was uh, saying so uh, yeah uh, to me it's a very meaningful term and I feel quite nostalgic about it in mm. um, being raised tonight yeah in the same way that I feel nostalgic about the term black you know because it was wider than just a descriptive term about you know and, and so sometimes I feel really saddened now when the debate is kind of reduced to who is black and who isn't you know because it was a really really inclusive term and I think you're right, Janet. I mean, I, I remember sisterhood. I still sign off for sisterhood, depending on who I'm writing to. It's an important concept. And, and it was, don't forget, the 70s and 80s were about consciousness raising. So mm. much as anything else, it was about trying to understand what it meant to be a woman in those, you know, in, in that context. And why, you know, all the, all the debunking myths around housework and, you know, women's lives and so on are so important. Oh, have we lost? We changed page or something. Oh, anyway. Oh, no, I was so just I was putting just up a, with a, a page. Sorry, please carry on. No, I was just agreeing with Janet that I think sisterhood is important. and But sisterhood was being challenged too because sisterhood needed to be more inclusive, you know, as I talked about. I think... Um, I don't want to let go of those concepts either, although we might need to always constantly be alert to, you know, ensuring that they don't become exclusive things. But I also think that um, it, it's not so much, you know, as women, you come together and you highlight your how women, you know, collectively experience oppression and you know, similarities and dissimilarities. 
So it's not to say that you don't do any of that. You do do all of that. That's what feminism is. But it's also about understanding that feminism ultimately is about transforming society. And if we really want to do that, we're going to have to link with other groups who are also trying to overthrow systems of discrimination, whether it's be, you know, people working around land rights, indigenous rights, um, you know, class, you know, still relevant uh, race, of course, it's still relevant, you know. And so it's about understanding that at, a, at, a, at another level, understanding that even if you focus on women, as, as I do in my daily life, I still have to have a sense of locating the feminist politics within a wider politics of progress, of, of equality and justice. And, uh, you know, that's important. I think that's that's a really excellent point to end on. Where we yeah, in, with thinking about um, a space of solidarity and intersectionality and rooting ourselves, yeah, and connecting with all groups. I think that's so important. I'm just sharing on the screen. Um, this is for PowerPoint. You'll, you'll all be sent it after, so you don't have to write anything down. Um, but just some links um, further about Angela and Pragna's work and the work of Southall Black Sisters, but also just some links to um, some other um, um, readings and resources. And it's definitely not an exhaustive list, but it just might be of interest to you if you want to um, learn a little bit more. So we'll be sending that to you um, afterwards. And um, there was something else. Oh, and yeah, and this is um, next week. If you want to join us, we've got Lola Olufemi, who's a writer um, and activist, and um, Rory Patterson Ackenbach, who's an artist and a researcher. And we're going to be talking about identity and body politics. Um, again, in just you can use the same link or you can sign up again. Um, I'm just going to um, initiate a really quick poll. If you don't mind, just really quickly filling out. There's just four questions there about the event. Um, we're funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund um, and the, so they support our work. And as of that, we have a prerequisite to, to get some evaluation um, about events and also to make sure that events in the future are good and inclusive and as informative as possible. So um, that would be most appreciated. And sorry that we've gone over a bit on the time tonight, but I think you can all agree that it was definitely worth it. <laughs> and thank you so much to um, Pragna and Angela again, and, and our facilitators, Ene, Daisy, um, Eliani and Lauren. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. It's hard when we have such fantastic speakers every week. You want to just give the full hour to them. But I feel like this event wouldn't be what it is without that discussion that we have afterwards. So, yeah. Thank you for giving up an hour of, or more of your evening anyway. Uh, and um, yes. yes. Thank you very much. It was oh. wonderful to meet you all and good luck with things and happy to join you in future conversations anytime. Please do. You'd be welcome anytime. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you.